one of the early but most precious stories in the gospel. Precious because it's from this story that the writer of Hebrews would be able to tell us that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. It's from this story that the writer of Hebrews can say to us this morning that we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. How precious to us, looking for strength, some of us a few days into Lent finding out how hard it can be to say no to yourself. One illustrious staff member who will remain nameless said the worst 40 days of the year is Lent. (laughs) Um, I think we can all relate to the sentiment on some level because it's so hard to say no. My goal this morning is to provide focus on this first Sunday of Lent. It's not something that we do for God. It's something we do with God. This is not something that we enter into in some way to prove anything to God, but to participate in the life and the love and the goodness of God. This 40-day journey into the wilderness is taken with Jesus. It is a grace-fueled journey. This is not about penance. This is not asceticism at its worst. This is not about earning. And my hope this morning is that I can accomplish the simple but profound task of bringing all of our eyes to Jesus this morning. Let's bring our focus to the one who is in the wilderness and find hope and maybe look at the story in fresh ways that inspire us, inspirit us, let the Holy Spirit invade us. Notice in our text that the very first verse of Luke 4 says this to us, that Jesus, and then it describes him, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. This wonderful experience of baptism and belovedness, he returns from the Jordan, and look at this, he was led by that same Spirit to the Bahamas. This is something that in my tradition is very much neglected. In the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, we celebrate the fullness of the Spirit. We even sometimes refer to ourselves as full gospel, Spirit-filled people. And what I didn't hear a lot of sermons about growing up was that to be full of the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. But to be led by the Spirit often takes you into a place of hardship, often takes you into a place of lack, often takes you into a place of isolation. I think this first verse, in the simplicity, it's a sparse statement. There's a lot of gaps But in this simple statement, what we see here, coming from the Jordan, coming from the place of belovedness, we take our first and very profound insight, and that is belovedness should not be confused with safety or comfort. For the person this morning who sits in the seat, going through a dark season, going through a challenging season, 
Do not question your belovedness because of your hardship. Frankly, we owe an apology to the rest of the world because this is a a distinctly Western American thought. If our brothers and sisters in India thought this way, they would be atheists. It's in the comfort and convenience of the West that we have the luxury of deluding ourselves into thinking that if God loves us, our life will be comfortable. It's in the story of the wilderness that we find that the direct result of belovedness, the direct consequence of being full of the Spirit is being led by the Spirit and that leading doesn't always take us to the easiest of places. Hardship and challenge don't come to us despite the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. They come to us because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit is authentically active. This is calling to mind things Jesus would say like, beware when all speak well of you. (laughs) Because on some level, if the spirit of the living God is flourishing in your soul, you will have tribulation, quote unquote. And when he says Jesus is full of the spirit, this is Luke's way of identifying the prophetic nature of who Jesus is. Jesus is a prophet. Luke Timothy Johnson, the uh, notable Catholic theologian, he draws this line into the fact that the Spirit creates a continuum from the prophets to Jesus and from Jesus to you. And that is we have a prophetic Jesus and we are a prophetic people. Why? Because the Spirit of God who animates and fills the mouths of the prophets, fills you this morning. Jesus goes into the wilderness, not as a victim, unwitting and unsuspecting. Jesus goes into the wilderness as a prophet ready for confrontation. Jesus goes into the wilderness like Elijah, whose 40 days on the mountain culminates with a confrontation. What gripped me for the first time as I sat with the text this year is sort of the greater narrative context of this temptation. And it took me back just a page to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 12 years old and his family goes to Jerusalem from Nazareth to observe the Passover. This is the highest time of the Jewish calendar. Many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with this story where after three days of searching and looking, they find Jesus sitting in the temple. I'm going to reverse engineer things a little bit, but I think it'll be helpful and I think it's not too much of a stretch. My reverse engineering starts with the fact that Luke and the other gospel writers identify the devil as personally showing up in the wilderness and conversing with Jesus, right? So this is something that really stretches the sensibility of modern minds in secular culture. Especially the more progressive understanding of Christianity as we like to talk about evil in purely systemic, impersonal ways. On this subject, I tend to be a little bit of a both-end kind of guy. And I think this story reinforces that for me. In other words, the devil shows up 
and starts talking to Jesus. And so in reverse engineering, I start to ask myself the question, where has the devil been before this? He can only be in one place at a time. My dad always used to like to point out that people saying the devil made me do it probably are lying because you're not that important. The devil wouldn't take time to be with you to make you do it. But then I came to understand when we were Pentecostals, we talk about the devil. We're just talking about the whole evil empire, you know, stormtroopers and everything. This is the devil. (laughs) But I'm guessing this is the devil. I'm going to give him that much room. I wonder, and this is just wonder with me this morning on the first Sunday of Lent, when little Jesus shows up at 12 years old with his family for Passover, and he's in the temple, the locus of the presence of Jehovah. He's in the temple. The temple is in the temple, and his family is looking for him. And when Mary finds him, What does he say to her in that 49th verse? He says, I must be in, look at this, my father's house. Such an odd statement for a 12-year-old who seemingly had a dad. Right? He could just as easily have said in that 49th verse, I must be in the temple. But Jesus says, I must be in my father's, not even the father's house, my father's house. I wonder if the devil was in earshot of that statement. I wonder. Maybe a stormtrooper was in the the crowd and heard it and called it in. We got somebody saying that God is our father. I don't know. But something starts to build here because we fast forward one whole page in our Bible to Luke chapter 3. And there's a crazy man who has, look at this, the spirit of Elijah. The Holy Spirit. His name is John the Baptist and he's in the wilderness crying out. Interesting, isn't it? So much of this early narrative is happening in the wilderness. And he's crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And I love the 15th verse. I pray this for myself and for all of us in the room. It says, the people were in expectation. Friends, let Lent do its full work in your soul. I pray that by the time the week of the Lord's passion comes, our expectations will be higher than they've ever been. By the time Easter vigil and the sunrise comes on Easter Sunday, that our expectations will be more intense and higher than they've ever been. That should be one of the fruits of the Lenten season. The people were in expectation. But look at what John the Baptist says in that 16th verse. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Maybe another stormtrooper. We got somebody saying a greater person than John the Baptist is coming. If the devil maybe at this point had been in Turkey, 
Or maybe he had been in the British Isles. Maybe at this point he's taking a jet to Palestine. I don't know. But I'm guessing that at some point, by the time we get to verse 22 of the third chapter, this is in the earshot of the devil. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. If we could skip in our Bibles from Luke 3.22 right to Luke 4.3, we'd actually find direct dialogue. Because the last thing that's said, the quotations end in Luke 3.22 and they pick up again in Luke 4.3. So let's read it or hear it that way. Quote, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. See, the question this morning is who's in the desert? Who's this guy? I've always read this story very much leaning into what Origen claims about the text. And Origen sense one of the early church fathers is that when the devil's asking this question, he knows exactly who Jesus is and he's trying to provoke him. He's disrespecting him. He's trying to get, he's trying to arouse Jesus' carnal passions. Jesus knows he's the son of God. You know I'm the son of God. How dare you ask me that? How dare you question that? That's what I always thought was going on. Come to find out, not everybody always thought that. Ephraim the Syrian, he says this, Satan was astonished at John's announcement. When John says, one is coming that is mightier than I, Satan goes, oh, what? Some of the church fathers actually believed that when John says, behold the Lamb of God, Satan is confused. And Ephraim's contending that Satan is tempting Jesus in order to identify Jesus. I like this. In other words, instead of Satan being this super in-the-know character, Satan is completely confounded at the prophetic work of the Holy Spirit through John and the metaphysical expression of the voice of God in John's baptism, Satan is going, wait a minute, hang on. Who are you? Cyril of Alexandria, he said that Satan actually was getting suspicious that this might be the Christ who could subvert his power. Notice all of the temptations have to do with power. Power over matter. Rocks. Power over people, kingdoms. Power over God. Get him to do what you want him to do. Why is he tempting? Because I want to see. Could this be someone who's more powerful than I am? Pause, take a breath. I want a free side note here. Let's notice the way the devil uses the Bible. 
Because the devil's use of scripture serves as a lesson to everyone in the room this morning. It's a lesson in the complexity and the risk that is inherent in our engagement with the Bible. Because the devil uses it quite well, just not faithfully. He uses it accurately, but not in holiness. He uses it to serve his own agenda. This book can be used that way. A friend of mine, he would say this, everybody likes to talk Hebrews 4. Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He said, the thing you have to remember about a blade is the same blade that a surgeon can use to heal, a mugger can use to kill. We see it in the temptation. Christian tradition has called attention, and I didn't know this. So if you knew this and you haven't told me for the year and a half I've been here, shame on you. But if you didn't know this, I want to bless you because this blessed me. Christian tradition has called attention to Luke's placement of the narrative. You see, I did something intentionally before, and that is I jumped us from God's pronouncement at the Jordan right into the wilderness because I wanted to skip over all the boring stuff. Well, what's the boring stuff? The boring stuff is the stuff that in our reading plans, we skim. It's called a genealogy. It's called the family tree. And it's this listing of the family tree that should be confounding if we read the text as a narrative. Because we have this 12-year-old boy saying, I must be in my father's house. We have this voice coming out of the sky over the Jordan River saying, this is my beloved son. And then we have Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattahias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son... You want to keep, keep going? Okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> Somebody said, that's all right. You can stop there. Oh, I see a name. Son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. We're going backwards here, okay. I'm looking for people I know. The son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Okay, we're, okay. The son of Shem, the son of Noah. Son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, oldest man who ever lived, Bible trivia. The son of Enoch, who's taken up with God and was not. The son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is why the devil's confused. Your beloved son. I already beat your son. I took your son out in the garden. Adam and Eve. I defeated them. God, you had a son. You had your chance. I beat your son. Your beloved son. This is why Satan is confused. 
This is why he's astonished. Because he's operating under the pretense that the work in the garden was the last word on us. He's operating under the pretense that when he defeated Adam, the son of God, that the defeat was final. He hears a 12-year-old Jesus speaking about his father's house, and maybe he turns his ear. He hears John talking about some lamb who's greater than him, and maybe he walks over to the crowd a little bit. But when he hears the father say, this is my beloved son, now he's got to get into action. Because he knows about God's son. His name was Adam, and he ate of the fruit that his wife gave him. It's no coincidence, then, that temptation in the wilderness begins with food. Because that's where it left off with the last son. If I got your first son with food in a garden, maybe I can get this son with food in the desert. We have to remember here that in Genesis 3... When that curse takes place, in verse 18, God is speaking to Adam and he says, thorns and thistles. I'm just thinking of cacti right now, right? Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you'll eat plants of the field by the sweat of your face. I'm thinking heat. You shall eat bread. And how about this from Wednesday night? For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. If this is not desert imagery, friends, I don't know what is. Perhaps this is why Ambrose, another of the church fathers who are inundating us this morning, this is what he says. As Adam, the first son of God, is cast out of paradise into the wilderness, so Christ the new Adam, the true son of God, goes into the wilderness on our behalf. Then to come forth from that temptation to lead us back to paradise. Who's in the desert? God's son. Why? Because God sent him there. In Genesis 3 and in Luke 4. Once as a punishment or consequence, but secondly, as power and leading of the Spirit. I love this idea when Ambrose says that he will lead us back to paradise because this tells us that we're all out there in the desert. That's where we're at. We live in an existential wilderness. And the story of Jesus' temptation is the story of the true and better Adam who leaves paradise willingly. Philippians chapter 2. He leaves paradise willingly to come to the wilderness of sin, the wilderness of human brokenness, the wilderness of the futility that our creation has been subjected to by God, according to Paul in Romans 8. He comes to this space to lead us, all of us, back into paradise. 
What we have to remember, though, is the only way back into paradise is through flaming swords. Through fire. And that's how to dust we return. Through this fire. Remember, the Spirit has not led Jesus into the wilderness for masochistic reasons. Not because God is a God who loves suffering. Not because God loves fasting. As a matter of fact, God loves feasting. Worship requires you to eat. The culmination of human history is a party. It's a feast. God is not focused on fasting. We need fasting. There's going to come a time, Jesus said, when we won't need fasting. And everybody said, amen. Could it be that Jesus goes out into the wilderness, yes, to lead us out, but also to redeem our history? Oh, what do you mean? I'm thinking of another story in Genesis. I'm thinking of Cain and Abel. The big why behind all of this, why would God take on flesh? Why would he empty himself out, taking on the form of human flesh? Why would he do this? Why would he go into the wilderness for 40 days and then get tempted with food? Why? Could it be that he's the true and better king? who actually is his brother's keeper. That he goes to the place of hardship, he goes to the place of lack, he goes to the place of isolation because you're there. Because I'm there. Because if he doesn't come, we don't go. And this makes me think, for those of us who have been rescued, for those of us who have a big loud amen in the back of our throats right now, it makes me think, what now? I'm glad that Jesus is my keeper. At the beginning of this message, I told you, if I can just get your eyes fixed on Jesus, if I could just get somebody excited about Jesus this morning, somebody overwhelmed and enthralled with Jesus this morning, who, beloved of the Father and empowered by the Spirit, goes out as his brother's keeper to the place where Adam was sent and finds us and leads us back to paradise. If I can start thinking of Lent that way, I'll be inspirited. I'll be inspired. I'll have footing. I'll have grounding to walk with him. But that walk with him, friends, is going to send us to the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Because Lent is not just about our rescue, but our ability to join Jesus as partners in his rescue of others.
What if this Lenten season is not just a season of giving up coffee, giving up single malt scotch? I felt free from that one this year. I didn't feel the need to give that one up. Because I don't drink it. (laughs) Worst joke ever. What if Lent, in our wrestling with things like sweet tea and candy bars, honed our focus on Jesus? Has anybody felt pathetic trying to fast besides me? At which moment should we not be that much more amazed at our Savior? Shouldn't we be that much more enthralled with him, looking to him, saying, how? How did you do this? I can't drive past Chick-fil-A without getting sucked this way into the door. And you went 40 days, and then you beat temptation with food. How? Could it be that his relationship with the Holy Spirit is that much more pure, that much more undiluted, undefiled, and corrupted? And could it be, as outrageous as this is, that we've set the bar too low? That instead of Lent being a time we're like, well, I didn't have a Snickers for 40 days. What happens if the bar started to come up and say, during this Lenten season, my eyes and my ears were highly sensitized to the people around me. My brothers and sisters who need keepers. My brothers and sisters who are living in their own desert, their own wilderness. And the question still remains, who's in the desert? Who's willing to go to the desert? Who's willing to be their brother's keeper? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Spirit, for your presence indwelling, empowering. I pray for myself and I pray for all of us in this room this morning that this season of Lent would be a season of sensitivity. It would be a season where our openness to the Spirit takes on new life. We have a new, fresh, radical openness to the Spirit, to the Spirit's power, to the Spirit's leading, to the Spirit's moving. I pray in this season that our spiritual senses would be heightened and we would see our brothers and sisters who need keepers in the wilderness. And in this way, our Lenten journey truly becomes journeying with you in your own rescue. So God, on this first Sunday of this season, may we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you as a reasonable act of worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.